if you've got your Bibles, here's what I want you to do. Go to Malachi, all right? And I'll tell you where Malachi is. It's the last book of the Old Testament, all right? So if you see Matthew, uh, you know, Mark, Luke, John, those are the Gospels. It's before that. So it's just before Matthew, Malachi. We're going to be at the end of chapter 2, last verse of chapter 2, and the first few verses of chapter 3. And so let me tell you a little bit about Malachi and why we're there. We are, uh, this is, we're taking a break from our Corinthian series. We are looking to um, and setting our hearts on the remembering of Jesus uh, that he came to the world, that he, as John uh, tells us in chapter one, he, he came and he dwelt among us. And because of that, we've been able to see the glory of God. And so there's a sense in which when we think of Christmas, when we think of Advent, we think of the first coming of Jesus. Advent also has tied up in it, not just the first coming, but looking forward to, anticipating the second coming of Jesus, the second appearing of Jesus. You might think about it this way. We remember the first coming, the first Christmas. We look forward to the second Christmas uh, when Jesus comes. You got, one of the things to understand is when you're um, reading the Old Testament, and if you lived at a time when all you had was the Old Testament and you didn't have the New Testament, and you read the passages, the foretelling passages, as they're looking forward to Jesus coming, you, you saw that as, as one event. Jesus was going to come, or rather the Messiah was going to come. The thing about it is you would read things like, okay, the Messiah is going to come and he's going to be a king and he's from the line of David and he's going to reign on the Davidic throne. So, so you know that he's going to come. He's a human being who's going to come through the line of David. But you would also read about the Messiah, that he's going to come on the clouds and appear in the air. And so you would read these things and you would know they were both true, but you didn't know how they fit together. It's after the resurrection and the New Testament writers are working this out and they say, oh, what we were looking at was not one coming of Jesus, but two comings. We, we weren't reading about one Christmas, we were reading about two Christmases. And we live between, if I can say it this way, between the two Christmases. And so what I want to do is I want to, over the next couple of weeks, look at the passages in the Old Testament some of them, that talk about the coming of Jesus. And in each of these passages, you'll see elements of the first coming and the second coming. And so that's what, I, what we want to do. And, and we're going to start this morning in the book of Malachi. And some of you were like, man, I didn't even know Malachi was in the, in the Bible, uh, all right? Or you thought maybe it was um, pronounced Malachi, and, and that he was, you know, like the Italian prophet, all right? That's my favorite, that's my favorite joke about Malachi. And that's all I got on that. So, but Malachi, so here's some things to know. He's the last voice of the Old Testament. After Malachi, it will be 400 years before God's people 
hear from God again. And, and so, Malachi, in many ways, kind of hangs in the air for 400 years. And the thing about Malachi, he writes it, probably the date is 432 B.C. And you think, man, how can you know that date? Well, there's a place in Nehemiah, Nehemiah 13.6. And Nehemiah, who's there uh, leading the Israelite people, they've rebuilt the wall and then they're working on the temple. And Nehemiah has to go run an errand and he has to go back to Babylon to meet with the king or king of Persia at the time. And he writes, hey, I was gone for a while, and when I came back, the, the train had come off the tracks. And it's very likely, it's during that year that the train was coming off the tracks that Malachi, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is speaking the Word of God to God's people. And the, the nation... Um, the, the Israelites, the remnant that are there, they've come out of Babylon. You know, they were there for 70 years in captivity. They, they get to come back to the promised land. They find everything in ruins and they've been rebuilding it. And you would think that this grace that God had showed them after this discipline of the exile, that they come back and in God's grace, he's provided them the provisions to rebuild everything. And they're... Um, you know, they're working hard now to be people who follow God's law and uh, observe the, uh, the feasts. You know, they want to they be better. That's really what's happening. But it doesn't take but a generation or two, and the, um, all the effort of trying to be better had just turned into religious motions, just going through the motions. Now, they wouldn't have said it that way. Don't get me wrong. They would have said, no, 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 we're being good religious people. We're doing all the religious things. And so they're probably surprised when Malachi shows up and through, you know, as the voice of God says, hey, I've got some problems with you. One, um, this, uh, this love that you say you have for me, that's not love at all. And and the name, you know, who I am and my name and, and, and how you worship, you're doing terrible at that. You, um, you seem to have forgotten everything I said about marriage and keeping it sacred. And here, well, here in this passage, sort of the fourth sermon of Malachi, we get one that's kind of Remarkable. They're going to be saying about God that he doesn't care that people do evil. In fact, he really likes when people do evil because God's not really a God of justice. We don't believe that he's a God of justice. And so Malachi is going to respond in a way that helps us prepare our hearts to remember the coming of Jesus and look forward to to his second coming. Read it with me, if you would. Um, I'm going to start in chapter 2, verse 17. I'm just going to read through some verses, and we'll go back, and we'll talk about him. He, he says this. He says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. That's the indictment, okay? They've, they've made God tired with their words. Some of you know what that feels like after having your children or grandchildren with you all weekend at Thanksgiving. 
you have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? Malachi answers, by saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them, or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, now God answers. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he's coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire, like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord. As in the days of old and as in former years, then I will draw near to you for judgment. I'll be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against those who swear falsely and against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages and the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Bow with me. Father, help us to hear these words this morning. It's part of this that means to confront us. Father, part of this that means to comfort us. Pray you would do both in Jesus' name. Amen. So, so they're asking, Malachi says, hey, you, you've made God weary. And they said, well, how, how do we make him weary, Malachi? And he said, well, because you, you're saying crazy stuff. It is really what he's saying. He says, the stuff you're saying is, um, is the most stupid thing we've ever heard in our life. You're saying, God, he, he delights in the evil people. He, he delights in the, what the evil people are doing. And then you ask the question, where is the God of justice? And they might be asking this for a couple of reasons. They may be asking it because they look around and they see, look, our enemies, those people over there, you know, the other people, they, they seem to be blessed by you and we seem to be having a hard time. Or they could be asking it because they know that everything they're doing is a mockery against God. And he hasn't done anything yet. You know, we can do, seems like we can do whatever we want. That God somehow has put the out of office sign up. You know, his his phones go into voicemail. 
And you say, well, how are they doing that? Well, it's interesting. Um, if you looked at the, the first part of Malachi, so, so you'll leave here and you'll go, man, I never even heard of Malachi before, but now I know everything about Malachi. I could be a Malachi scholar. And, but you, at the very beginning of, of Malachi, God comes and, he, and he's, he's really mad at the priests, by the way, the, the preacher guys. So if you ever think, man, this is always, it's at me. I've been wrestling with this all week. So he's mad at the preachers because here's what the priests have been doing. The people have been bringing sacrifices to the Lord. That's, that's how it worked. They'd bring the sacrifice to the Lord so that they could worship God. And, and, and you wanted to be a people that worshiped God. That, that, was your, that, that was what you wanted to do. And, and yet, when God said, hey, listen, when you worship me, here's the deal. You, you can bring bulls. You can bring lambs. You can bring doves. You, you know, if you're poor, you can bring um, grain. I mean, so there are a lot of different things you can bring. But when you bring it, bring the best you have. Bring the lambs that don't have any blemish. and Bring the first fruits of your grain, the first grains that you pick. And it is a, because the whole idea was that when you came, you were bringing a, a sacrifice before the Lord. Now, not much different than if you were going to have a really fancy person over at your house for a meal and you... Um, Pull out all the stops. You know, I mean, different than just, you know, a Thursday night and you make macaroni for the kids or something like that. This is, man, you pull out all the, all the stops. You, you, you've made a big thing. You, 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 you're wanting to honor the, the person that's coming. Well, here's what the priests had done. The priests had, had become so lax and um, so uncaring about it that when the people were coming, they were saying, hey, you don't need to bring your best um, it's fine. If, if the animal you bring is blind and has black eyes because, you know, it's been walking in circles and bumping into the... the bring, bring that one. That's okay. The, the ones that are sick and lame, why don't you just bring those? The ones that you would throw out in the trash anyway, bring those. We'll sacrifice them. You keep the good ones. We'll take the bad ones. The Lord doesn't care. And God comes and says... Um, that's, that's offensive to me. You're putting sick and uh, 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 discarded in. You, you, you are having the people bring trash before me. And offering that as worship or sacrifice. And, and he says, would you do that to the governor of the land? Is that how you would treat the governor? No, you wouldn't do that. And so... God's mad at the priests, and by virtue, he's, he's frustrated, he's wearied with the people of God, the people that he preserved during an exile, and out of, in his grace, brought them out of exile, and brought them back home, and, and God, over and over and over again, and generation after generation after generation, God has poured out his grace, he has been so long suffering with his people and if you were you know you were just reading the old testament and you came to the end of malachi and, and you you finished reading and there was no new testament and you took your glasses off and rub your forehead and you'd think this is not going to go well these people have no hope there's no hope for these people 
Because you've been reading over and over and over again about failure after failure after failure. And you realize they had some moments where they did good for a while. But they turn around and they fall right back into their sin and their idolatry and their indifference. And by this time, they've come and said, well, evidently God doesn't care. Because if he did care, you know, he'd bring his justice upon us. But where is the God of justice? Well, he answers the question in verse 3, chapter 1, and he says, Say, you want to know where the God of justice is? In, in verse 3, chapter 1, physically says, I'm coming. I'm on my way. That's where he is. You know, as we read through the Old Testament, and you, you see the storyline. God's chosen some people, and he's loved them. And he's loved them despite themselves. They have some good moments, but they always seem to circle back into the old ways you realize that's very much like your life. You know, you have these, these aspirations for yourself, these designs about yourself. You, you look in the mirror and you think, man, I'm, I'm going to be better today. I'm going to do better today. Or this week or this year or, you know, we're, we're getting ready. You've got, you know, 30-plus days now to start working on your New Year's resolution so that you're going to be the better than you were this last year. But that's not going to last very long. Or you're getting ready because you're going to start your Bible reading plan come January 1 and hope you make it past Valentine's Day this year. I mean, I know. I, it, your life and my life, we're the same. We, we have high aspirations. We want to do well. The thing is, we always find ourselves coming back to our lowest common denominator, that's the people of God. They want to know where the God of justice is. See, you might be wondering too, man, I can just do whatever I want. Apparently, God doesn't seem to care. And there's times when I've done good, but only hardship has come my way. And there are times when I don't seem to care about anything. And again, God seemingly blessed me. And you wonder how that all shakes out. And so God answers him, and he says, hey, by the way, look, I, you want to know where I am? I'm coming. Behold. Verse 1 of chapter 3, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Now, this is great, because this is a, the, the John the Baptist, I mean, uh, the Handel's Messiah. There's three parts of it. Verses 5 and 6 and 7 of the first part is all the beginning of Malachi and is talking about the coming of John the Baptist. In fact, John in his gospel, John 1, verses 6 through 8, he's quoting Malachi. Matthew chapter 11, Mark chapter 1, that John the Baptist is the one who is the messenger that's coming to announce the coming of the Lord. And then he says, and the Lord whom you seek, he's going to suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now, now this is where we get into a, a thing where we have a, uh, a double fulfillment. That's what, you, that's what you'd call it. 
kind of a partial fulfillment and then looking forward to a later fulfillment. John chapter 2, you have this picture. John's telling the story. Jesus comes into Jerusalem. You know it. It's a famous one. Jesus is angry, goes and fashions a whip out of cords and comes and drives the money changers out of the temple. He's coming to the temple. That's a partial fulfillment of that. There will be more to come of that. He'll come as the judge on the second Christmas. You know, when you read the Old Testament and you think about Christmas, you might imagine um, with a lot of these passages that the Christmas movies would be more like John Wick than Elf. Really? Or, or Die Hard, you know, Bruce McClain, which technically it is a Christmas movie. Um, but it turns out his first coming is not like that. Jesus comes first, he's a savior. Secondly, he'll come as a judge. You get glimpses of that in Jesus' ministry, and John 2 is one of them. The message of the covenant, he's going to come and he, he makes this uh, covenant, you, you see the glimpses of that, the, the, the beginning of that, the inauguration with the disciples in the upper room when he institutes the Lord's Supper. They're taking the Passover feast, and he says, eat this bread and drink this cup and do this until I return. And then he seals that covenant with his death on the cross, the shedding of his blood on the cross. But he'll come to the temple and he'll sit on the throne and he'll reign as the judge. That's the book of Revelation. So he's coming. And the natural question is, is that good or is that bad? Well, if you're one of the Israelites in Malachi's day and you hear that God is coming, there's nothing but bad for that. Look at verse 2 again. It says, but who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? It's like a refiner's fire and a, and a fuller's soap. Who, who can stand? He's going to show up, and who will be able to stand before him? Who's going to be able to withstand endure the day of his coming. Because it sounds like when he comes, we're all toast. And that's part of what he means. He says, look, he'll be a refiner's fire. You're going to purify uh, the, the gold and the silver by putting it in the flame and the dross burns away. All the impurities are burned up. The, the fuller's soap, it's this, it's this cleaning soap, a laundry determinant detergent. It, it, it's only used one other time in the, in the Old Testament, Jeremiah chapter 2. And it's meant to get out, you know, the dirt and the grime and the stains. Here's the problem, though. The Israelites were in such a way, in this metaphor, hey, you're going to be putting the refiner's fire. The, the deal is that they would hit the fire and there would be nothing left after they came out. It all gets burned up. In Jeremiah 2, it says, though you wash yourself, God says this through the prophet Jeremiah, though you wash yourself with lye 
and use much soap. The stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord. So you keep washing and washing and washing and scrubbing and scrubbing and scrubbing. And you can't get the stains out. There's nothing you can do to get the stain out. And some of you feel that. You know that. You know, it's interesting. Just before this, God says to Jeremiah, he says, Jeremiah, here's a research project for you. I want you to go out into the world. I want you to find all the pagan people that you know. Or if you don't know any, meet some. And I want you to look and find who, who out there amongst the pagan people um, has ever exchanged one God for another? Where they say, you know what? I don't like the God I have, and so, so I'm going I'm to go get another God. Who, go out there and see who among the pagans have been exchanging one God for another God. And the implication is, Jeremiah, you can search, but you're not going to find anybody that does that. Nobody except my people. Because my people seem to go around exchanging the one true God for every other God that does not profit. They exchange the glory that I offer them for idols and trinkets. And then God says, calls the heavens as a witness and says, be shocked, heavens. Be appalled, be utterly dismayed. Because my people, they've done two evil things. You know what it is? They've exchanged me. They, they have forsaken me. I'm the living water. And they've forsaken me. And instead what they've done is they've done, gone and they've, they've dug holes in the ground, cisterns, but they're not even good holes. They're broken holes. To collect stagnant water that gets polluted by the dirt. And that's what they've decided is going to be their drinking water. They've given up the pure and fresh and never-ending divine source of all life. And decided rather to drink out of the sewer that they've created for themselves. This is what God's speaking into. So who can stand? Who, who survives when God comes? Who survives when the Messiah comes to his temple? Who survives when he comes and inaugurates a new covenant? The answer that we're supposed to give as we look into the mirror and examine ourselves is nobody survives. I know I wouldn't survive. That's the implication. In verse 3, he'll, he'll sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he'll purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they'll bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Essentially what he's saying is, look, they, 
God is going to do something so radical to you that you can't do for yourself. He's going to refine you. He's going to purify you. He's going to wash you. He's going to make it so that you can come into his presence and worship him like you were always created to worship him. That's what he's saying. It's interesting. In the, in the revelation that John writes at the end of the Bible. It opens up and John, he's, he's hearing a voice. He's, he's been exiled on an island all by himself, the island of Patmos. And he, and he hears the voice of Jesus. He's like, oh, I recognize that voice. And the text says that he turns to see where the, the voice is coming from. And it's this It's this scene, and he says, you know, he hears the voice. He turns to look, and he sees the Son of Man clothed with a long robe, golden sash, and his eyes are like a flame of fire. And it's this terrifying scene. John says his face was like the sun shining at full strength. And so he falls down like he was dead at the feet of Jesus. Who can stand? Jesus says to John, don't be afraid. You can get up. Later, a couple of chapters later, in in Revelation chapter 5, there's this other great scene. And by the way, Revelation's all about the second coming of Jesus. It's about the second Christmas. And he, and he shows up, not in a manger, but he shows up on a white horse. And he's the warrior dressed in white and comes as the judge who defeats his enemies. That's what it's about. And so in, in Revelation chapter 5, there's this scene in John, he's up in heaven and And God is seated on the throne, and in the right hand, in God's right hand, there's this scroll. And and you can see, John says, there's writing on the outside, and then the implication is there's writing on the inside, but the scroll is, is sealed. It has seven seals on it. And the question is, Who's worthy to open the scroll? And, and so all the heavenly beings, all the angels and, uh, are around. So, I mean, we're, we're angels and we're beautiful, and we, and we, um, you, 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 but we're not worthy. And everyone looks around and says, no, nobody who's here is worthy to open the scroll. And John, who's sitting there watching it, he begins to weep. Because what it means is that then there's no ending. The, the, the thing doesn't end. We don't have any end coming. And so he begins to weep. And then all of a sudden, one of the angels looks at him and says, Hey, John, you don't have to cry anymore. The lion of Judah just showed up. The lion. And so John, he Here's there's a lion there. So he turns to look. And you know what it actually says? It says, I saw a lamb. 
as though it had been slain. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. He looks because it was announced that there's a lion with all the fierceness and all the, the things that, that, the, that the lion brings to your mind. But he turns and he looks at the throne and he looks between the throne and the elders and what he sees is the lamb. In all his gentleness and meekness and compassion and grace. See, in a, in a book that's dedicated to the second Christmas and the terrifying return of the judge to judge the living and the dead for how they have responded to God in their life. Over 30 times when God's people turn to look to see the lion, to see the warrior, you know what they see? They see the lamb. That for those that are believers, for those that have trusted, those that have allowed God to come and be, so they've been refined and they've been purified and they've been washed, they turn. They don't see the lion. You don't see the judge. You don't see the one that has come in all his terror. You turn and you see the lamb who was sacrificed for you. It says in verse 4, this is the result of what happens. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem. This is the people. It'll be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in the former years. So see, they, they thought if they would bring the offering, that, that, the, that, that the act of coming and bringing an offering would purify them. And God says, no, no, no. Your offerings are, are wearisome to me. There's nothing you can do to make yourself acceptable. First you have to be made acceptable. And then the offering you bring. Is accepted. See you, you can't buy God. You, you can't bribe him. There's not a thing you can do. So verse 5. It finally comes. Where's the God of justice? I'm coming. And then verse 5 says, and then when I draw near to you for judgment, I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, who oppress the widow and oppress the fatherless against those who thrust aside the sojourner and those who don't fear me, says the Lord. I'm coming in judgment. And, and here's, here's the reality. Every single one of Malachi's readers fall into this category. They're guilty. They're guilty of these things and much more. And not only are the readers in Malachi's day, but every single generation that has followed since then, up to us, we find ourselves guilty here. And the picture, you have to see it with the next verse, 
But the picture here is that the sin, the terrible sin in the lives of his people will be dealt with swiftly, finally, and decisively. But the question becomes, how, do you, how does God deal with the sin and not, and not destroy the sinner in the process? That's the question. Verse 6 answers it real quick. Look, he says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. So many things to say here. But here's the first. All the things in the list there in verse 5, all those things in those verses and more, are true about the people of God at the time of Malachi, and every day since then it's all true. Secondly, any one of those things and more beyond this list, any one of those things are disqualifying. They make it impossible for you to be able to stand in the presence of God. He's too holy. It's not safe. Thirdly, verse 6 tells us, and this is incredibly important, that the fire is a refining fire, and it doesn't consume. The children of Jacob, this is God's people, and after the resurrection, it's everyone who comes to God by faith in uh, God's son, Jesus, and Paul spills all the ink on that. Fourth, so what happens to the sin that made them the sinners that they are? In other words, how in the world is the sin purged, but the sinner survives? That's the question. Paul answers the question in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he, God, God made him Jesus For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. That God sends his son, his sinless, perfect, eternal, co um, reigning, coexisting of the same substance, his son. He sends his son, his only begotten son. And he didn't send him just to die for your sin. He sent him to be your sin. How do you survive when your sin gets purged? Because Jesus was made your sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, it's by faith, by grace through faith that you come. Here are three things that cannot coexist with grace, and I'll wrap it up with a story. Three things that cannot coexist with grace. First, any personal attempts at alleviating human guilt cannot coexist with grace. Grace alone provides the alleviation of guilt. See, when it comes to God, your guiltiness before God, some try to ignore it. Some try to rationalize it. Well, you, you just don't know how hard my life's been. You know, I, I'm a product of my circumstances. I'm... Some try to make up for it. Not through remorse or through penance. 
the only thing that sets us free from guilt. And I'm not just talking about outwardly. I'm talking about at the place deepest in us, at, our, at the level of our conscience, so the writer of Hebrews says, Hebrews 8 and 9. The only thing that can cleanse the guilt of our conscience is the blood of Jesus. See, it's not how bad you feel. It's not how much good or right that you do or promise to do or, or promise to pay back. It's only the blood of Jesus. Your attempts to alleviate guilt, they cannot coexist with grace. Secondly, grace cannot coexist with human obligation. You cannot pay it back. There's nothing you can do to pay God back. If you're here this morning and you think grace is somehow, okay, God has saved me, so I, if you, God, if you were to save me, if you'll just forgive me of this, I'll never do that again. Or, God, if you'd take care of this thing, I promise I'll make it up. I'll do good. That's not grace. You're not responding to grace. Here's another thing. Third thing. Grace cannot ex coexist with human merit. No one earns it. Grace is not something that comes to the best of us. Grace is incompatible with anything you're trying to do to alleviate your own guilt. All you can do is come to God and say, here, I'm guilty. It's not anything I can pay back or make up for. This isn't because I'm worthy. Grace is that your son did it all for me. So how do you connect with that? Here's a, a very imperfect analogy, and then I'm going to pray, and we're going to go home. I, I, it's imperfect. But suppose I, I say to my son Jay when he was 10 years old, it's very plausible that this could happen, um, my son, Jay, who's an adult now, but when he was 10, say something happens like this, that I told him before church, hey, you need to clean up your room before you go to church because you must have a clean room or you won't be able to watch the game this afternoon, which is a real big motivator for my 10-year-old son. But suppose he plans poorly, very plausible, and he leaves, you know, get to the, they leave for church before cleaning the room. And then I come home after church, I discover the messy room, and I clean it. When he gets home from church, goes outside, plays, his afternoon fills up with nonsense, and then he comes in just before the game starts and realizes that he hasn't done what he's supposed to do, and he feels terrible and apologizes, and humbly accepts the consequences. I know, didn't clean the room, can't watch the game. And I say to Jay, Jay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to credit your apology 
and your admission of your wrongdoing, I, I'm going I'm to credit that as a clean room. I said, you must have a clean room. You won't be able to watch the game. Your room is clean, so you can watch the game. And what I mean is, I credit. I take your apology. And I credit that as a clean room. It's not that the apology is the clean room, not by any means. And it's not that he cleaned his room. I did it. That's pure grace. So all I mean is, in my grace, his apology connects him with the promise given for a clean room. That the clean room is his room. His room is clean. And I credited it to him. I credit his apology as a clean room. You can say it either way. Paul says it both ways. He says, faith is credited as righteousness. And he also says, God credits righteousness to us through faith. So when God says this morning to you, if you're sitting here, to those who believe in Christ, I credit your faith, your trust, your belief in what Jesus has done. I credit that as righteousness. He doesn't mean your faith is righteousness. But he says, you believing in what Jesus has done, I'll take all that Jesus has done. I'll take his whole life and all his purity and all his perfection and everything that he is, and I will credit it to you. That he became your sin so that you can become his righteousness. And that connects you to everything you need to stand before God, to come into his presence. So we don't have to fear as believers his coming. We look forward to it. With those that have pushed God to the side, they'll meet the lion. For those who, who have embraced his son, We'll know the Lamb. If you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, I pray you'd confront us this morning where we need to be confronted. I pray you'd comfort us this morning where we need to be comforted. Father, I ask that you would draw our hearts in, in remembrance and thanksgiving and joy and peace and comfort as we Reflect on the coming of your son Jesus, that first Christmas. I pray we would enjoy all the moments of that. And I pray you also would kindle in us the longing and the expectation and the anticipation of Jesus' return. You, you give us Christmas eyes with which to see the world around us. And Father, by grace, draw us to your Son. And it's in his name that we pray and by the power of your Spirit.